vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. The vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in, in him, he is it that bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I don't know how many of you read online news articles, but in April of this year, 2021, Christianity Today would post an article that was based on a survey that was done by three different surveying groups. The survey was done together. One of the groups was Barner Research. The other one was Black Millennial Cafe, and another one was Urban Ministries. They published an article titled, Black Millennials and Gen Z Becoming More Cynical towards the Christian identity. Black millennials and Gen Z becoming more cynical towards Christian identity. The article's main idea is that the gap between the beliefs of parents and grandparents and their kids is wider in the black community than the country as a whole. According to new data released by Barna, by the Barna Group, around two-thirds of black millennials, millennial is anybody born between 1980 and 95, in Gen Z, anyone born between 1997 and 2012, identify as Christians. Two-thirds identify as Christians, which is 10 percentage points fewer than black Gen Xers who were born between 1965 and 1980 and 20 percentage points fewer than black boomers who were born between 1946 and 1964. And this is about double the difference in faith found between younger and older Americans overall. So this article is saying in the black community, even though the African-American, black, whichever term you decide to use, is the most churched community in the United States of America, they are also seeing the most decline within the age groups. That as you continuously go on year after year, more percentages of young millennials and Gen Zs have stepped away from the church. Now let me tell you what stance I'm going to be in this morning. This morning I'm going to be in more of a teaching stance than a preaching stance. Because this is something that we need to absorb. We're talking about our youth. We're here on Youth Sunday. And we need to build a community for them to be transparent. So I want to give you some homework. When you go home, I want you to look up this article. Here's the title of the article. Black millennials and Gen Z become more cynical towards Christian identity. That's step one. That's step one. And what I want you to do is as you read over this article, I want you to see and think about the differences between your generation and the generation of children or teenagers or young adults that you have in your household. 
I want you to think about the big things, and I want you to think about the small, intricate things. Let me give you an example. I have an eight-year-old daughter at home. She has no idea what I'm talking about when I sing Jesus is on the main line. This girl has never picked up a house phone in her life. She is the only generation that is on this earth right now that was born with an iPad in her hand. She's the only generation that thinks a cell phone is the only kind of phone. We went to a hotel one time, I lied to you not. She picked up a regular landline phone and said, Daddy, what is this? And I was just like, well, that's our fault because we don't have a house phone in our house. That's our fault. We should have taught you a little better. But imagine you and your generation and the things that you've gone through and the differences between the generations of your grandchildren and your children. Imagine how differently they need to see Jesus. Imagine what the things that they've gone through that you haven't gone through. Imagine the things that you've gone through that they haven't gone through. How do we close the barrier and make sure the generations are learning and fellowshipping and worshiping Jesus together? So what I want to do today is I want to, I know you're in a season as a church where you're talking about reconnecting to Jesus and bearing much fruit. So what I want to do today is I want to have a conversation about reconnection, but I also want you to know that there's another conversation that is happening with teenagers, with young adults, with those who are just stepping in the work field. And it's not about reconnection with Jesus. It's about disconnection from Jesus. And the best way to have a conversation is you only can answer one question at a time. So even though we're going to be talking about reconnection, I want us to keep our mind on disconnection. And we need to have a conversation about that on a later date also. Here's your second piece of homework. I want you to go on YouTube and I want you to look up a YouTube channel called Jude 3. And I want you to watch a series. I want you to watch the whole second season. It's about three or four episodes in of a series called Why I Don't Go. It's a young lady by the name of Lisa Fields, who's an apologist out of Jacksonville, Florida, and she sits down with young uh, professionals in between the ages of 18 and 28 or whatever ages they are, and she asks them, why don't you go to church? Why have you stopped going? What has stopped you from going to church? And some of the things that came up with them not going to church is they couldn't handle the injustices of the world. Well, if everything is so crazy in the world and you're calling me to church and telling me to praise a God and be happy about that. How do I reconcile this God with the craziness that's going on in the world? One of the hardest books I've ever read in my spiritual journey was a book about the Old Testament, and it's called, Is God a Moral Monster? How do I praise this God who has enemies in the world and has told his people in the Old Testament to kill every person in a civilization, including the women and the children? How do I reconcile that with a loving God? How do I call this God that I love a loving God who tells me that the friend that I love, my college roommate that I love, my high school best friend that I love, that uh, me and him or me and her, that we will be eternally separated and one of us will go to heaven and one of us may go to hell based upon our relationship and what we believe about God in our hearts. How do I reconcile that? I'm not saying it's irreconcilable. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that we need to step into the gap and reconcile it. Here's another thing that they talked about in this series. A question that they asked, has your, that we need to ask our youth, our young adults, has your relational experience with God been restful because of the relationship between you and God, or has it been stressful because of rules? Many young people, when they watch the relationships of the older generations in front of them that they have with God, they don't see relationship, they see rules. 
They say, do this and do that and live this way and live that way. And don't wear this, but wear that. Don't say this, but say that. Don't listen to this, but listen to that. And when they ask them why, there's this saying that comes from older generations, which I think is one of the most ineffective sayings that I've heard in my life. Don't ask me why. I don't need to explain it. So therefore, since you told me don't ask you why, you don't need to explain it. When I get old enough to believe for myself, I'll go find the answer somewhere else. And the answer that I could have gotten from you is a lot safer or a lot better than the answers that I'm going to get from another place. Here's question number three that I want you to think about while you're watching these. When you're thinking about your young adults, when you're thinking about your teenagers and teenagers and young adults, these questions are already stirring in your heart. And I want you to write other ones down that are stirring. What are your own personal reasons for going to church? Not the ones that were cited when you've been forced or directed, but the ones that motivate you to worship God with the body of believers. Why do you come? Not because my mom told me, not because it's what my family do. I heard somebody say the other day, I was born a Christian. That's impossible. I I, I was born a Christian. And then what comes after that is my whole family was in the church. My dad was a pastor. My mom was an usher. You cannot be born a Christian. But some of us in the way that we govern and we leave our lean, lead our families, and I'm getting ready to jump into the text right now, we set up our families like that's a reality, like somebody can be born a Christian. How do we set up that reality? Because we force them to be saints before we allow them to be sinners. And we make them believe that they are saved just because they do the activities of a Christian. And then when they're looking for God in the deep innermost parts of their lives, they don't know how to to relate to him because they've never been taught relationship. They never had the opportunity to say, well, you don't want to go to church. Okay, let's talk about that. Or if you if you don't want to go to church, I understand that. But the reason why you go to church in my house is because I honor this house for the Lord. And everybody who lives here has to at least respect the relationship that I have with God. But if you want to talk about when you go get your own in the relationship you want to have with God, I'll be more than willing to have that conversation with you. And it's not straying away from conversation. I'm walking up the stairs out of the blue the other day and my daughter asked me, uh, Daddy, why do people have to die? Eight years old, she's already melancholy, she's, she's, she's prone to just thinking about things and things get her really sad. Why do people have to die? Because I don't want you to die. I want you to be here and be my daddy forever. Why do people have to die? There's two ways I can take this conversation. Addison, you're too young to even worry about that. Don't worry about that. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in life when you need to. And then she's stuck with this perplexing question in her heart. She's hearing answers from everywhere else. Or we sit down and we talk about Adam and the original man and sin in the garden. And what that causes for us is that we die a death here on this earth. But if we believe in Jesus, which she is a believer in Jesus, and she understands this, that we live in eternity with God, we have to bring the gospel down. Let me move on. Question number four. Teens, I want you to ask yourself this. Parents and grandparents, I want you to think about this question. Has church equipped you to deal with real life? Mental health, trauma, racism, everyday living, culture, friendship, relationships, etc. Or has it taught you escapism? Don't worry about those feelings. Just praise God and everything will be all right. When I read my Bible, I see just praise God and everything will be all right. But I also see people expressing trauma and feelings and hurt and grief. 
I also see things done to people that were just uh, uh, just crazy and outrageous. And I see that these people need to work through these issues. What are the answers that we're giving to those questions to more? If you have left church, do you believe life is better? I want you to grab somebody. I want you to grab one of the young adults. You know, I want you to grab one of your grandchildren, one of your children who are of age and said, I'm not going to church anymore. And I want you to ask him this question. If you have left church, do you feel like life is better? If you're planning to leave church, do you believe your life will be better and why? I want to hear what they articulate about living life outside of the gospel. And then the last one, what is the significance of consistent physical worship with the bodies of believers on a Sunday? Because some people believe that I can be a Christian and I can be extremely right with God and I don't have to go to church on Sunday. I can go to church when I want. And I'm not going to say yes or no from the beginning, but I'm going to ask you, well, what's the significance of being with the body of believers? What's the significance of having community? What's the significance of that? And what Jesus teaches us in this passage today, Jesus explains to his disciples the process of real connection with the Godhead. So some of us are worried about how do I get reconnected? COVID really took me for a spin. COVID really knocked me off a little bit. I felt so strange not being in the body of church. How do I get reconnected? Yes, that's a question we want to answer, but we want to make sure that your reconnection is real connection. Yeah. Yeah. That there's a such thing called as false connection to God, and it's the way that a lot of us have done church for years. You just come, you sing on Sunday, you listen to the preacher on Sunday, and then you don't read your Bible again until the next Sunday. That's not real connection. You should read your Bible and you should be in the scriptures. And we're going to look at that today more than you hear preaching. Our relationship is a daily relationship with God. So Jesus explains to his disciples the process of real connection with the Godhead. And he explains it. And what this sermon title is, is the R's of reconnection. Everything he explains to them is a word that simply starts with R. And we look in John 15, verse 1. Read it with me. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And the first R is right revelation. That in order for us to have real connection with God, in order for us to establish the reconnection that we need with God in this season or any other season of our life, we need to have revelation, but not just any revelation. We need to have right revelation. What do I mean by that? Notice what Jesus says here. He says, I am the true vine. Which automatically means if Jesus is talking about saying, I am the true vine, he's trying to warn us not only about his authenticity and his identity, but he's trying to warn us that there are some false vines out there. That I am the true vine. When Jesus is saying, I am the true vine, he's saying, I am the authentic vine. I am the genuine vine. I am the vine that God works through. There is no other vine besides me. He did not say, I am one of the true vines. He did not say that there are other true vines. So what Jesus is saying right now is he's setting us up and he's letting us know that there's only one way to God. And that one way is through me and me alone. I am the true vine. Now what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about a grapevine. And some of you may remember my older people. I heard it through the grapevine, right? You know that song. What Jesus is talking about here is a grapevine because a grapevine is a vine that, that produces some of the best fruit, the best grapes for making wine. 
And he says, I am a true vine, and when you have a grapevine, you have all these other vines that try to attack the grapevine and stop it from growing, but there's only one vine in the grapevine that actually breeds the grapes. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now you say, well, what is Jesus talking about? Why is he telling me about a grapevine? A grapevine is an interesting plant. Not only does it produce some of the best fruit on earth, which can be transformed into wine, but it is also a great plant in itself. It's a permanent plant, but it differs from other permanent plants in many ways. Now watch this. So in order to successfully maintain a grapevine and produce the best, best possible grapes and the best possible wine, it's important to know each and every part of the vine and its functions. So he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser that my job is to produce fruit, but I cannot produce fruit if I do not have relationship with the vine dresser that I cannot do this by myself, that there must be somebody over my life. There must be somebody that is handling me. There must be somebody that is maintaining my growth. There must be somebody that looks over me getting life, and there must be somebody that disconnects the dead parts from me. One of the biggest things, one of the biggest lies within the generations that are growing up now is this idea of autonomy. That I run myself. I should be able to choose what's right for me. You can't tell me what's right for me because what's right for me is my choice. And Jesus says right here, I'm sorry, I understand that you believe that, but that's a lie. And let me tell you the reason why it's a lie. Jesus says, I'm not going to block you from from understanding. You may not want me on the throne, but understand somebody will always be on the throne of your life. Whether it's me, whether it's the idols you create, whether it's the feelings that you have inside, whether you want to live by your own prerogative, you will never be the leader of your own destiny. He talks about the father as the vine dresser. Look what the vine dresser's job is here. The vine dresser only has one job. What is the goal of the vine dresser? The keeper of the vineyard, the vine dresser, has one goal, to see that every branch produces lots of grapes. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. I am the one that produces fruit and it's my father's job to show me and mold me and maintain me and send me and lead me to the best ways that I produce fruit. So here's something that we have to learn. It's a hard truth, but it's a truth. God is more concerned about what you produce than what you propose. What do I mean by that? God is more concerned about what you produce than what you propose. There are are many of us in every generation that have this habit, this bad habit of telling God how to do his job. We tell God who can get married and who can't get married. We tell God what is right sexuality and what is not right sexuality. We tell God what what we believe about racism and justice and what we don't believe about racism and justice. We tell God what we believe about mental health and what we don't believe about mental health. And honestly and truthfully, let me give you this here. For some of my young people out there, mental health is real. It's real. I want you to hear me say that. But when you look at mental health, I also want you to see that the progression of sin and the consequences it causes is real. Everything's not mental health. Some stuff is just consequences of a sinful lifestyle. Sin will drive you crazy faster than anything else I know. And so when you have yourself or when you have friends, I'm not saying don't say mental health. I'm not saying don't dig into the crevices of what's happening in mental health. I'm not saying that depression and anxiety is not real. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is it's not everything. 
What I'm saying is this world likes to cover up sin and the consequences of sin with the slogan of mental health. Can I give you another one? There are tons of people in the world who have been traumatized. Trauma is real. But when you've made decisions and they've brought consequences in your life and those consequences have been bad and heavy, yes, there could be some part about that that's been traumatic, but that trauma was caused by your own hand. Many of us have been through it that we've made decisions and it hasn't looked good on the other side. And so what we have to do is we have to be able to use God's vocabulary and his dictionary. We don't only say the words that God says. We don't only say these words, but we have to be able to define them the right way. Jesus in the first one says you need to have real revelation. Jesus is the true vine. It's the first thing. Jesus is the only vine that God works through. It's the second thing. God is more concerned about what you produce and what you propose is the third thing. Here's the fourth thing about the revelation. We need to know the difference between general revelation and special revelation. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 1, 18 through 20. Romans 1, 18 through 20. Remember, I told you I'm going to be in more of a teaching stance today, and I'm going to tell you the difference between special revelation and general revelation. There are, there's a young lady that I want you to look at on this YouTube channel, Jude 3, and she talks about why she left Christianity for African spiritualism. She said, I left Christianity for African spiritualism. And she begins to talk about some things. But look at Romans 1 with me, verses 18 through 20. And this is what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what God is saying is uh, what Paul is saying when he's writing Romans is he says, when you look at the clouds and you see them move in the sky, when you look at the perfect hue of blue in the sky, when you look at the sun and you understand how the sun works, that's enough to tell you that God is real. When you look at certain bugs in, the, in, in, in your garden, when you look at how certain stuff grows, when you're encountering humans and you realize how full we have personality, that's enough for you to know that God is real. And he says, but what happens is we get into this habit where we suppress the truth. We take creation and exit out for evolution. We say, well, I can look at the sky and I don't want to believe that God is real. I don't want to believe that that was designed somebody. What I want to believe is that this existence that is so well put together came from chaos. Can you tell me anywhere else in life where chaos can bring order? I only know chaos to stay as chaos. And so you want me to believe that something, boom, blew up and it brought all this order to life? God says they're suppressing the truth. And this is what happens. In order for us to suppress the truth, when we don't want to worship the person who has really done it, we have to begin to worship something else. And so when I listen to this young lady who was a believer and says, I left being a believer in Jesus for African spiritualism. And I ask her, what do you worship now? And she's saying on this video, I worship the sun and I worship nature and I worship this. Here's what she made her mistake. She has taken the things that God has used to point to him. And instead of following the finger of where these things have pointed, she has ignored where they are pointing and said, I'm just going to worship the thing. 
when you hear my teens, my young adults, when you hear your people say, well, man, that worked out because the universe brought it together. I want you to know that if you study the universe, the universe is a created thing. Something that is created cannot be worshipped like it is the creator. And what Paul is saying in Romans 1, 18 through 20 is the reason why they worship the created thing is because they don't want to give honor to the thing that really created the created thing. And Jesus is saying here that you can't get stuck on general revelation. You can't get stuck on the things that are supposed to point to God and worship them as they are God's. And it just doesn't happen in our generation. Israel would take statues and they would build them and they would make them with their own hands and they would make them out of created things and they would walk around them and they would praise them and worship them. Our heart is an idol-making factory. If it is not worshiping God, it will find something else to worship. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to get caught up in general revelation. Is the things that God has created to point towards him. I want you to get caught up in special revelation. When God is telling you, this is why I created it. This is who I created. In the beginning, right? When it says, they created the heavens and the earth. The Holy Trinity. When it talks about in the book of Colossians, how Jesus is the visible, the visible uh, um, 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 persona, the visible person. He is the visible attribute of God. And that everything was created by his hand. And that nothing was created outside of him. And that he is the name above all names. What he's trying to point you to is saying, don't get stuck on the created thing. Go to the creator. Can I be honest with you? Your sexuality is a created thing. There's a creator that tells you how that's supposed to work. What you spend your time with are created things. There's a creator that tells you how much time you should spend with something. Can I tell you something? Social media is a created thing. There's no way that social media should be defining your identity. There's no way. That we should be getting caught up on likes and reposts and followers and just different. That's created stuff. And God is saying, if you focus on me, the creator, then you would understand the difference. So what do we need to do to understand the difference between general and special revelation? We need to study what we really believe. Truth is something for you to really get the depth of it. You have to study it. And even if you don't believe in Jesus, even if you have friends who don't believe in Jesus, if you have grandchildren and children that don't believe in Jesus, sit down and ask them, well, what do you believe in? Because if you're going to believe in something and it's going to work for you, it at least has to be coherent. It has to lead you from point A to point Z. And we're going to talk about that a little more. What do you believe in? The second thing is, if I believe in this, then... I means I also believe in what? What kind of process do your beliefs build? Well, if I believe in this right here, then what does that mean? If I believe Jesus is the son of God, then what does that mean I believe about sin and holiness? If I don't believe Jesus is the son of God, then what do I believe about God, period? Begin to build a process. It's not good to have one belief saying I believe in this and I don't believe in that and not build a process of what that means for every part of your life. Can you articulate what you believe and why you believe it? The third thing, do these beliefs really make sense or do I just want them to make sense? There's a time when you have to say, does what I believe really make sense? Do I really believe that this beautiful earth 
that the snow that comes in the winter, that the sun that comes in the summer, that the rain that comes here, do I really believe that that just happened because something exploded and the world just functions like that? Do I, do, do I really believe that humanity and the personality we have and the brain that we have and how we function, do I really believe that even in the best of our work, we can govern ourselves and live and make, and make a society that benefits all people? Do I really believe? Uh, here's another homework thing. I told you I'm going to give you homework. I'm teaching. There's a documentary on Netflix that talks about social media. I want you to look up this. It's called The Social Dilemma. And I want you to listen to these people talk about social media. It's all of those who were in the beginning of the dot-com boom, who are beginning of the internet boom. And what they're saying is, when we created these things, we thought we were doing something really, really good. But later on, we found out we were doing something really, really bad. That we thought we could create this thing that could solve the problems of the world, but all of a sudden it's just building more problems for us. That we thought we can build better interaction than God. God said people should interact face to face, one with another, be in the same room with one another, learn how to have a conversation, spend time with people. And we thought we can do that over the internet. Do you know that the teenage rate for suicide has increased by at least 40% since the eras of social media? Because kids are in their room and when somebody doesn't like their posts or when they're not being affirmed or where they feel like they're being kicked out of a community or when they feel like popularity is the most important thing in their life, they begin to harm themselves because they're not getting the affirmation that they need. And they said, I thought I would get it here. They told me that this is the place where I should live. Go back to John 15 with me. I got to move. John 15, point number two, real connection slash reconnection is held together by repentance and redemption. Look at what Jesus says right here in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In verse 3, Jesus is talking about repentance and redemption and this idea of sanctification. They are three different things. But we need these if we are going to connect well to God and if we are going to reconnect well to God, if we are on the outs. The first one is redemption. It's a one-time thing that you are saved and you are redeemed in Jesus Christ. You don't need to be saved over and over and over again. Your salvation does not wear off. When you confess with your, heart, with, with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has died on the cross for your sins and he has rose from the grave with all power in his hands, you, my friend, are saved. That's it. You can't lose your salvation. Nobody can take your salvation. They can't do anything which it's in the hands of God. But in order for you to get the best out of your salvation, in order for you to get the fullness of God, there are two things that have to be a part of your daily life. Repentance and sanctification. Repentance is you saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I get things wrong. I know that I'm going to make choices and decisions that are against your will. I know that at times I try to run my life and I do things that are outside of your standards. I know that I have desires in my heart that I want so badly, but you told me I need to stay away from. That I need to repent of. God, I'm sorry. I confess that thing. Will you forgive me? And repentance is not only for the big sins. It's for all sins. It's for the little times at school or work that you're inconsiderate. 
It's for the times that when you say something to somebody that was out of hand, that was out of pocket because you were frustrated, you need to say, God, will you forgive me for that? And you need to go to that individual because what it does is it continuously has us survey our life and ask ourselves, God, am I doing what you've called me to do? Am I looking more and more like your son Jesus every day? Take the stuff out of me, whether it's the small stuff, because what the Bible says, a little bit of yeast corrupts the whole dough of bread. Do you know it only takes a little bit of yeast to blow some bread up? Do you know it only takes a little bit of yeast to change what bread looks like? It says only a little bit of bad company corrupts good character. It only takes a little. What Satan tries to make us believe, the enemy, and we're going to talk about that shortly, is that we can have our little sins as long as we stay away from the big stuff. But what he doesn't put us into, he doesn't tell us that the little things are what builds the big stuff. That don't too many people just start hitting home runs with sin. Don't too many people just start telling the most extravagant lies in the world. It starts with a little one. All too many people go out and just start ruining their lives, just take the first swing at the bat and just ruin it all. It starts with the little stuff. And we begin to survey our lives and we begin to repent. And the second thing that we need is sanctification. But first of all, I want to give you some pointers on repentance. Here is what we can do to repent daily. Prayer. Concentrated amounts of times in prayer when you are bowed to God, confessing your sins and asking for forgiveness. It's one. The second thing is confessing our sins to one another, that you are in a community of people that have a view or a, 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 the ability to walk in the doors of your life that you hide from other people. That how we communicate in the world right now through social media is we communicate all the good stuff and hide all the bad stuff. I don't see too many bad people have bad, I don't see too many people have bad days on Instagram. I don't see too many people showing their failures and the things that don't go right on Twitter. I don't see too many videos of I messed it all up on TikTok. I don't see too much of that. But you best believe they are. You best believe we all are. I don't see too many people. When I, when I ask you how you're doing, what's the famous uh, response? Good. I'm doing great. I'm doing good. But I don't see you were just going through some things the other day and you made some bad decisions and you need somebody to talk to and you said you weren't going to do it again, but you did it again and you realize that you can't get over this by yourself. You need community around you. We need to confess to community. And then remembering that repentance doesn't always have to be formal. It can be a casual conversation with God, just a quick sentence to confess and ask for forgiveness. God, I just, just snapped on that person who cut me off and I was wrong for that. I, I, I want to snap again because I'm driving up to him to catch up to him again right now. But, God, I, I just need your help. Maybe if I confess the first sin, you'll stop me from the second. I, I just want to. I just want to. That's a true story from my life. The other day, I'm telling God, I'm like, God, I don't know why I get so angry at this, these minor infractions. I don't know why I'm racing people to the light, not letting them get in. I don't know why, God, I, you just, I, I, I'm sorry. Forgive me. This is just me. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. But you know what? The little things point to the deeper things. And God begins to ask me a question. Darren, why do you just feel so disrespected by people you don't know? Like, what is that saying about you? That somebody can just cut you off at a light that ain't yours, on a road that you don't own, and you up here acting like they just done did the biggest thing to you in your life. You ready to jump out your car and fight for what? What's broken inside of you? 
What's broken inside of you that you can't look past an offense? Why has that person become the most important in your life person in your life right now over me? Instead of you carrying my image, instead of you looking like me, instead of you representing me, you turning into Nino Brown off New Jack City. I don't know what's going on. Mike Tyson has this favorite saying that he's saying now, when somebody can provoke you to anger, they're not your enemy, they're your master. That they have this ability to be able to own you and make you perform and make you do all these other things and puff up. You got to ask those questions. Let me move. The next thing that we need to talk about after repentance is progressive sanctification. Jesus says in verse 3, already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you. Now notice in all of these, we have partial responsibility before God. That we don't make ourselves clean, but we come to God and repent when we're dirty. That we don't make ourselves more Christ-like, but we submit to the will of God to grow us and make us more Christ-like. And if we're going to work on progressive sanctification, if Jesus makes us clean, redemption, he has made us clean, and we want to stay clean through the blood of Jesus, and we want to grow to look more like him, we have to begin to think about our motives of our decisions. Why do you spend money the way that you do? Why, Why do you value the things that you do? Why is success in the modern world? One of the things that I heard these young people talking about on this video, you'll hear them talking about it, is that they're saying life is better when I left church. You don't understand how I've just taken off in my career. And I can hear myself to them saying to them, all success ain't good success. That do you realize that you're talking about your career, but Jesus cares more about what you do at work. Jesus cares more about that. He cares about you at home. All success is not good success. Why do we put this level of success over righteousness? Why am I making this decision? The, the, the statistics say that people believe they call themselves faithful Christians if they go to church two times a month. Why am I faithful in God's kingdom with 50%, but I got to give everything else 100%? Why? We begin to look over our motives of our decisions. We begin to look over the hopes and expectations of the outcomes of our decision. When I do this, what am I hoping to get? Because Jesus tells me I should be looking for this. But when I do this, if I'm looking for that, where am I missing it? Where do I need to grow? Where do I need to take on the identities of Jesus? What do I need to put on in my lifestyle? And what do I need to put off? We need to monitor who we are versus who we want to be. I want to become this because the world gives you an illustration every day of what you should become. The world even tells me if I go to Popeye's and buy a chicken sandwich that I should buy the one that's like Megan Thee Stallion. And so you take your kid to buy Megan Thee Stallion Popeye chicken sandwich with the hottie sauce on that. And then she start wondering what a hottie is. You got to understand the world gives us images all the time. The world is telling you every day who you should be like. And sanctification, all of those, my motives and my decisions should honor Jesus. My hopes and my expectations of the outcomes of my life should be about Jesus. I was reading the other day, and and even in my own devotional time, I said, Jesus, I got a bad relationship with success. I want to make it in some ways that are not healthy. And the reason why I know that they're not healthy is because they're not about glory. They're about proving other people wrong. It's not about your glory. 
Jesus, I, I got a bad relationship with the way that I'm thinking about how I want to provide financial security for my family. Why? Wealth is not wrong, but the reason why I want to run after it so hard is because I think that if I give my life over to you, you won't give it to me. And I need it so bad that I'm going to get it by any means necessary. I don't want you to define my life a certain way that is separated from wealth. You either give me this. Remember when I told you that God is more concerned about what you produce than what you propose? We all propose bargains to Jesus. I'll serve you if you give me this. But if you take that away, I don't know how good I'm going to be for you. Why? Because that seems so important to me, looking at our identity. And then we go on to the third thing is fellowship. Repentance sanctification and fellowship. Fellowship is the quality times and dealings spent with God to learn more about him, grow closer to him, and be a better worshiper of him. And let me tell you this, fellowship only comes through time. You only grow in fellowship with God through time. Remember, you're redeemed, your relationship is set. Nobody can break your relationship with you and God, but there are times where you and God have a little less intimacy in your life than he wants you to have where he's a distant friend instead of a close friend. When he goes back from being the primary thing to the tertiary thing in your life, this fellowship has to be built by intimacy. So ask yourself, I I have something that I do in my life. I take a, I have a, a, a time journal for my life. Where do I spend time at the most? That 15 minutes that I was scrolling could have been 15 minutes of prayer. It's not the amount of time that God is worried about. It's that you gave it to somebody else before him. You told him to wait because other things were more important. Fellowship. God, do I really want to be close to you? You know, all of us have friends that we know are not good friends. And the reason why they're not good friends is they can only call us when they need something. Hey, I was wondering, hey, how you doing? You know, they ask all those questions. They act like they care. How the family doing? Last time I talked to you, I heard your mom was having some health. Is everything all right with that? And you're like, they really don't care. That's us in our prayer. God, I'm only coming because I need something right now. I thought I had this figured out by myself, but you're the friend that I can call all the time that I get in trouble. The one that I spend no time with, but I can call you when I get in trouble. And let me tell you how this is being translated to all my, my, my young people, my teenagers, my young adults. I hear so many people that don't know have a relationship with God talk about how they pray to God and God blesses them. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian, but I pray to God. What God? Which one? Which one? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I don't go to church, and I don't like the church, and and um, and you know, my grandma and them go to church, but I make sure I still pray, and I understand the intention in their heart, the belief that they can have this connection with God outside of the way that God told them to be in relationship with them, but that's not real. God gets to set the standard of relationship. God has high standards when he says, this is how I want you to spend time with me. And I do not want you to believe that you can do it whichever way you want. And I accept it. God doesn't accept that broken down, crappy love that we give to each other and try to give to him. I'm closing. I'm closing. Here we go. Real connection slash reconnection always considers its rewards and consequences. Look at verse four. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in in him is he that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Read verse 6 with me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you realize that Jesus never calls us to follow him without telling us the reward or the consequences? Look what he says in verse 5. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. And the consequence, he's saying, don't abide in me and you will bear no fruit. Look at verse 6. Anyone who does not abide in me gets cast in the fire and burnt. It's a consequence, right? Look at verse 7. Abide in me and ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And what Jesus is telling them is that I'm not just asking you to follow me just because. I'm telling you to follow me because I am Lord. I am Savior. I am the one that has all power in my hand. And when you follow me, there's a better life following me than there's one not following me. And what I'm going to do that all the other gods don't do is I am actually going to tell you the reward you get for following me and the consequence that you don't get for following me. And I'm going to allow you to weigh the decision. And in order for us to really figure out what we believe in, we have to take into account the awards and the consequences. We have to say, is it really worth me following something and all that it's promised me? I, I go to my boy Mike again. Mike, Mike, Mike has is, is been teaching me a lot. Mike Tyson said in an interview recently, if you say, if you believe that having a lot of money will make you happy, you've never had a lot of money. Because it's the last thing that makes you happy and it creates more problems. If you believe having a lot of whatever besides Jesus will make you happy, you ain't never had a lot of whatever you can fill in the blank. A lot of popularity, a lot of money, a lot of whatever, whatever you want to fill in. Shoot, you can even say a lot of food. A lot of food don't make you happy because when you got to work that food off, when you got to go in there and exercise, you asking yourself, why in the world did I do this to myself? I should have started practicing portion control years ago. An abundance of things outside of God don't make us happy, but Jesus loves us so much that he doesn't hide the rewards or the consequences from us. How many things in your life are calling you to follow them and they told you the reward and the consequence already? Well, if you follow me, you're definitely going to get this or you're definitely not going to get this. Some of us have given years to our lives of some, of some things that are just maybes. That are deceitful maybes. Well, if you do this, well, maybe you'll end up like this. If you do that, well, maybe you'll end up. But Jesus is saying, no, abiding me and you will bear much fruit. What is fruit when Jesus is talking about this? Things that are valuable, things that are effective, things that are productive to God. Things that are valuable to God. I want you to bear the things that are valuable. Things that are productive for his kingdom. Things that effectively actually work to bring about an end that matters in this life. That's what fruit is. Don't get worldly terms of success mixed up with fruit. They're two different things. The only time worldly success adds up to fruit is when God is on top of the worldly success. And he is guiding it the way that he wants it to bring about something eternal. Everything that happens is not fruit. And then Jesus is also telling us something in here. He's saying that if you're going to pick a path of life, that there should be a finish line that you're running to. If you're going to pick a path of life, there is a prize or a consequence that you are running to. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Paul explains it a little better for us. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Look at what Paul says here. 
And I'm going to start at verse 24 and at verse 27. Do you not know that in the race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's at the finish line for you? In the life that you've chosen and the decisions that you make and the places where you spend your time and the things that you want more than God, what's at the finish line for you? You know, one individual told me, he says, how I keep my life free from sin is when my flesh or lust or ungodly desires or the evil one or try to lead me to sin, I think about the sin once I get the thing that I think I want. I think further down the line. So if I go here and I actually do that, what really happens in my life? Oh, yeah, it'll taste good for a minute. Oh, yeah, it'll feel good for a minute. Oh, yeah, I can lie and get this. Oh, yeah, I can steal that. But what really happens at the end? And he says, I look at my life back then and what really happens, and then I play myself back on why I wouldn't want to make that decision. Jeff Bezos, when he's making a decision about business, he says, when I'm making a decision about business, I look 30 years down the road, I ask myself, will I regret making this decision or will I regret not making this decision? What's at the finish line for me? And what Satan does is he traps us in the right now. He traps us in the moment. What our flesh does is it traps us in the moment. And it says, right now, this will be good for you. But it doesn't allow us to factor in 15 minutes after, two years after, 10 years after, when we're looking down the road saying, if I do this now, what happens then? But Jesus does. If you abide in me, if you remain in me, if you worship me, if you stay with me, you'll bear much fruit. If you abide in me and you remain in me and you stay in my Father's love, I'm going to love you like the Father loved me. Jesus even told us what Satan's going to do. All he's come, he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Peter, there's a roaring lion out there waiting, roaring around you. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, waiting to have you. That what Satan does is he hides the long term from you and he gives you the short term and he makes you fall for that. But he doesn't tell you what's going to fall out after. Run, run. And then you don't have to turn here with me, but I got it. Philippians 3, 12 through 14 says the thing. Not that I have already obtained this and not that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. When you're thinking about the decisions that you make, are you thinking long term? All my young adults in here, got some homework for you. This is one of the greatest books that I've ever read. It's a book called Popular by Mitch Princeton. He's a professor at Yale, and he talks about how popularity actually ruins our lives to really realize how the world works and how we should want meaningful relationships more than popularity. And he talks about how popularity offers you something right now, but it makes you deceitfully believe things about the world that aren't true, and it takes you to believing that you have community and company right now, but it takes you to some of the loneliest places in the world. The last thing that we need to look at as we close out 
our last and final point. Real, re- uh, real connection and reconnection results in representation. As we look, we're back in John 15. And as we look here, look what Jesus says in verses 8 through the end. <clears throat> By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says that if you abide in me, what happens is there's this cycle of representation. That I represent who my Father is in heaven, and you represent to the world who I am in your life. That if you abide in me, what happens, look is what he says in verse 8. You abide in me, in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified. If you abide in me, you bring glory to the Father. That's what it's about. It's about glory. That our lives is about bringing glory to God. So no matter, it's not about bringing glory to ourselves. And we get mixed up with, we get in that fight, God, who's going to get the glory for this one? I kind of like want the glory for this one. I know you're supposed to have it, but who gets the glory in our life? And then he says right here, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you abide in my love, I'll love you like the Father that loves me. And the world will see the representation of heavenly love and not worldly love. Now watch this. Do you know on these videos I gave you for homework, I need you to watch them. That people who have stepped away from the church, they say that they have experienced a love that is filled, uh, 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 I mean, emotion that is filled with oppression and violence. They say, I was oppressed in the church. That people were violent against me in the church. They didn't listen to me. They just accused me of stuff. They just did this and did that. And we understand that there are three sides to the story, but understand that sometimes that stuff has happened in the church. And the reason is, is because we haven't had love like Jesus has in the Father. and We haven't abided in him to make sure that we are getting the love from him that we need and that we're giving the love. Watch what he says, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love representation these things i've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full there's the reward reward joy not happiness not things always going the right way not you always getting what you want but joy that there's something inside of you that no matter how bad the word the world is going, you can praise God and you can get up and sing like we sung today no matter what's going on because inside of you is joy. And you know why inside of you is joy? Because you're actually sticking to something that is outside of time, that is outside of the world. Listen to the promise of God. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. That we choose the things that get us stuck in this dirty and this rotten and this filthy place instead of clinging and abiding to the one who has overcome it. The reason why I challenge racism, but I don't get caught up on it and it doesn't make me switch my God is because I know my God is over it. And you can run this world any way you want to. And you know what? I got to deal with that. And I got to sit in that. And I got to raise my kids to show them that they need to come up against that and speak truth against that. But I know that you ain't the real creator. And I know that this is the way it's supposed to be. So you can act like you have your stuff together. But I know it's broken. And this is the reason why you're not going to get me to doubt my God because you've hung a white Jesus on the wall. Because I know that ain't my God. And I know he's overcome that. 
There are reasons why I can get rid of this filth. The reason why I am deeply grieved about 450 murders in the city that I live in. The reason why I'm grieved but I'm not stuck in that and I don't feel hopeless is because I know my God is above that. And I know the people who are behind this and I know the spirits that are behind this are trying to make me get the doubt. They're trying to make me doubt God and say, God ain't going to save you from this. God ain't good. God don't care. But I know that he's over that. Now, I know some of you are like me that after church on Sunday, listen to what he's saying about representation as I close out. He's saying that when you walk in the world, you should always look like me because I always look like my father. When you walk in the world, you should always have on your uniform that looks like Jesus because we represent one another. I represent my father. You represent me. And in me, when I'm sitting by my father, you are represented in heaven because of who I am and the sacrifices that I've made. I know some of you are like me. When you leave church on Sunday, you don't even go home. You pop by the mall or you pop by a store to see what's in there. Watch this. When you walk into the next store, when you walk into Nike or when you walk in the Neiman Marcus, wherever you shop, we got pallets. Everybody got a different pallet, right? When you walk into the store, watch this. A store that is really serious about their brand makes their employees wear their clothing. Now, you don't walk into Nike and see somebody with Adidas stuff on. You don't walk into Adidas and see somebody with Nike stuff on. You don't walk into a section of Neiman Markets and see them wearing whatever they want. Because what they say is if you are going to sell my brand, you're going to represent my brand. If I'm going to call you and tell you to be on my team, then you're going to represent who we are. I don't want to see you wearing anything else because if so, that means you belong to that other side. Jesus is saying if you're going to represent my brand, you need to wear it. If you're going to say that I'm your God, you need to represent me. If you're going to say that I've blessed you, you need to go out there and tell people how. If you're going to say that you believe that I'm bigger than anything, you need to let them know that nothing can wear me down from believing how good God is, that I represent Jesus because he's loved me and he represents the Father. And that's when the church begins to really look like the church. And that's when we can reconnect and have real connection. But what we do is we sit here on Sunday and we go out there and we don't represent the way we need to. Reconnection and real connection is about revelation. It's about repentance and redemption. It's about us abiding in Jesus and looking at the reward. And it's about our fellowship. If we teach our young adults and our youth to have that, be in relationship with God. I don't have a standard over you that you have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. Just be repentant. Just know when you've done wrong. I don't have a standard that says you have to go out here and do it on your own. No, abide in Jesus. I don't have a standard that you have to impress me. You ain't got to impress me. Just bring God glory. Because you know what? Sometimes your child's going to bring God glory and it's going to upset you because it's not going to be what you want them to do. Sometimes you're not even going to be able to see the vision that God has for them. Just bring me glory. Let me pray. God, 